Vampire, Werewolf, Jinn, Phoenix, Shapeshifter, and Witch. They all came from somewhere. Six humans started the ritual. Six supernaturals walked away. But they left behind the one person who could destroy them all. Reese. Now she seeks vengeance on those who stole their power from her body. She seeks her children, for they will pay the ultimate penance. Available at MythMart.com, Amazon, Goodreads, and Barnes and & Noble. And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Carry on my way, well, son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 135 of Lupa's Bits. I am your host, Lupa. And before I get into housekeeping, I just want to tell you, do you know exactly how long 135 weeks are? Because I do this the show weekly, so every single week, well, not every single week, but for 135 weeks, I have been doing this show, this particular show. I was on Mythbits for a better part of two years. And now I am, well, no, I guess it was about a year and a half. Be about a year and a half. 94 episodes. So we'll figure that out in a minute. Um, so I've been doing Lupa's Bits for 135 weeks, not consecutive weeks. I did take some time off. There was, you know, a few weeks I missed here and there. Uh, but 135 weeks is two years and seven months. So I have been doing this pretty much consistently for two years and 7.048 months. Holy crap. So I was on MythBits for 94 episodes, and that would be uh, 1.8 years. So one year, eight months. So I've been doing this for three years four years yeah four years so yeah i've been doing this for four years holy moly i just wanted to share that with you okay so let's get into some housekeeping and get the official crap out of the way so number one dark myth publications is excited to announce the release of tim law's novelette Myrtle Naughton's Guide to World Domination an autobiographical 99.7348 73844% true to be released on um, August 8th. And number two, I'm excited. I've read it. I edited it. Obviously, I've read it. It's, <laughs> it's hilarious. It is hilarious. 
Dark Myth Comics will be entering the last stage of their distribution plan and will be making will be taking orders from the public beginning September 8th for American Smash number one. And as I read you that, they are being bagged and tagged and getting ready to be mailed to comic book stores from coast to coast across the U.S., all 50 states, and into Ontario. So look for those. That'll be exciting. Number three, management at the Jayzo Modcast Network want to apologize for the absence of the Grindhouse Sleaze podcast. As Dave Montoya has and will continue to undergo oral surgery and is currently unable to record. (laughs) He can't do that. He's gumming his tongue right now. It's kind of funny, but kind of adorable. Okay, number four. Um, the countdown to September 24th is on as we will learn who the grand prize winner will be of the fifth annual open contract challenge. Wow. Five years. I can't believe we are about to come up with, come down to our fifth year winner. We will have five years under our belt doing this. And speaking of September 24th, that is also the day that the World of Myth magazine returns with the new ebook and printed copy. So keep your eyes out at theworldofmyth.com and don't forget to get your submissions in for October, November, and etc. Because once we kick off again in September, we will be back as a monthly magazine. God willing. <laughs> God bless us all. <laughs> Uh, number six, MythMart will be exploring non-company-owned products, so indie products by other authors, other publishing companies, other creators, uh, to offer on the storefront. So if you have an item that you wish to sell at MythMart, contact Dave at David K. Montoya at jazomondarkmyth.com. Get a pen and a piece of paper, folks, because this is a long one, and I'm going to try and do it all in one breath. D-A-V-I-D-K-M-O-N-T-O-Y-A at J-A-Y-Z-O-M-O-N-D-A-R-K-M-Y-T-H dot com. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I need a break and I need a drink. I bought a new water bottle when we were out. I had to go to the dollar store and get screen protectors because I'm really rough with my phones. And if I don't have the tempered glass screen protector, I wouldn't have a screen on my phone. I probably wouldn't have a phone. So I found this water bottle and it's really cool. And it's labeled. So 7 a.m. says good morning. Then it says 9 a.m. Hydrate yourself. 11 a.m. Remembering, remember your goal. 1 p.m. Keep chugging. 3 p.m. Feeling awesome. 8, 5 p.m. Don't give up. 7 p.m. Almost finished. And 9 p.m., you did it. Um, and I'm finding that I'm actually drinking the entire, almost the entire thing before. That I don't drink anything after 5 p.m. Because I'm an old lady. And if I drink anything of substance after 5 p.m., like I'm going to be up a few times in the night peeing because I'm podcasting, so I need to drink. Because, you know, I get thirsty. So, yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was kind of funny. So I bought it. It's pink. It's turquoise. It's new. It has a straw. It's great. And when I close it and seal it, I can tip it upside down and it does not leak, which means I can toss it in my bag and don't have to worry about my electronics that are in said bag getting wet. 
because my other one is my cup, is like my can, which looks really cool, but it leaks. So, and this one fits in my car holder a whole lot better, I think. I don't know, I haven't actually tried it yet because I haven't actually been in my car yet. Um, I bought the two, two coolest things from Timu. Um, I got them free because I had to return some items that I was not impressed with. So I used my credits and I bought a um, camera for my apartment and I checked it out and it's really cool. Like I can control, I can move it. It can, I can control it from my phone, from the app on my phone. So I can move the camera all around so that I can look around. I can look up, I can look down, I can look left, I can look right. I can talk through it. So if somebody's in my apartment, I say, Hey, the hell are you doing? Um, it records and I paid for a year of cloud saving. So it'll, it, I can do, um, live viewing with it. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. I can't wait. to. I've tried it out at my sister's, and I can't wait to get it home, um, set it up, and see what I can record. Um, it's also be good for ghost hunting, too. But, uh, yeah. So, like I said last week, there may or may not be a, I had to wait until my live studio audience walked away because he gave me dirty looks last week when I said this. But there may or may not be a podcast next week. Um, I am going to be... Uh, in the Muskoka area and I'm going to be at my sister's cottage and there is electricity not exactly sure how good the phone signal is but there is no wi-fi so depending on how much data I use on my phone between now and next Tuesday um, will dictate whether or not I podcast and upload it because I'm going to have to hotspot my phone and use the data on my phone to upload said podcast. Um, and I am not in a position to pay for extra data. And I don't know anybody else who is in a position to pay for extra data. So just throwing that out there. If there isn't a podcast next week, it is because I am in the wilds of Muskoka. Ontario um, in cottage country and I mean I can probably whip into or when we go into town if we go into town after Tuesday I could probably get my sister to stop at the Timmy's and I can upload the podcast at the Timmy's I don't know how long it would take um, find free wi-fi somewhere in town in Huntsville and upload the podcast so fingers crossed we, do, we can do that Okay, so that's all the official crap out of the way. Um, yeah, so tomorrow morning we are loading up the um, space bus, as I call it, because it has every bell and whistle that you could possibly imagine. has the coolest camera. You can actually, the, the screen in the front of the van, you can actually see the kids in the back. There are cameras throughout the minivan, so you can see what the little people in the back seat are doing. Um, so we call it the space bus. <laughs> it's a space shuttle. So we are heading off tomorrow morning, my sister and me and the three little ones. And um, my brother-in-law and his sister are coming up on Saturday. So we are going to be out in the wilderness, just me and my sister and three little ones for two days. Well, for a day, one night, we'll survive. Um, and my sister and I are very, very excited about it. This is her cottage, so she's been up there before, obviously. I've never been there before, but we grew up um, on Shandos Lake. We grew up in a cottage that my grandfather built the year I was born. 
and he built it because he wanted his grandchildren to have a place to go in the summer where they were safe, they could be kids, and they could be outside in nature. And it was the most amazing cottage. It wasn't anything fancy. It was two stories. Um, he built it with his own two hands, him and my uncle um, and my my biological father um, and my mom, my grandma, my uncle Jeff, my auntie Kathy. They, my grandparent, my grandmother, and my mom and my aunt cooked meals outside on a wooden um, piece of press board and two sawhorses. That was their kitchen counter. And they had the cook the camp stove hook, cook, set up out there, and they would cook meals out there. And um, they would, during the day, and then at night, they would all stay at the hotel in town, Anderson's. I don't think it's Anderson's. Well, it's not Anderson's anymore because I know they sold it. But, yeah, and there's pictures of me in my little baby walker uh, looking cute as a button because, you know, I am. <laughs> and I'm sitting on like a cement slab, the, the, the foundation pad with two by fours studs walls around me no drywall no insulation just the studs <laughs> they literally built the cottage around me and um and then my brother and sister when they came along they got to experience summers at the cottage and water skiing on the lake and fishing and lightning bugs and campfires and just the silence of it and the animals and the wildlife and the birds and the bees and the butterflies and the bugs and, the, you know, everything that goes with being at a cottage. Um, so I'm very, very excited. I haven't been to a cottage in a long time. I went to something similar when I was in California. We went to a cabin um, up in the mountains of Big Bear. But, yeah, you're going to see if you follow any of my social media you're going to see a lot of outside pictures, a lot of pictures of the lake, of me in the lake, of me in the bush, of could be me up a tree. Um, it's going to be it's going to be fun. Now, the only drawback until my brother-in-law gets there is there's no water. There's no running water. Um, it's an old cottage and there are things that need to be repaired, obviously. Uh, the piping, the pipes are one of them. So, but we're going to be in a really cool area. And I just wanted to share with you, I don't know if cottages are the same in the States. I don't know what Americans would have in their cottages, but in Canadian cottages, there are certain things that you will find. Just like every family, every cottage is unique. Maybe your cottage has a display of off-color postcards pinned to a wall, souvenirs of family vacations. Maybe your family enjoys breaking out the 40-year-old cribbage board. Oh, my gosh, the memories I have of my mom and my grandma and my grandma and my Aunt Louise and my grandma and my Aunt Shirley sitting at the dining room table on rainy days or in the evenings um, playing cribbage. Now, do you know what cribbage is? I'm asking my live studio audience. Okay, so cribbage is, cribbage is a game of 29. It's adding, and the, the, the board is either a straight, long wooden board with pegs. You have to go and you count, you know, 15-2, 15-4, and the rest don't score. Those are like little rhymes to go with your hand, and you, you count your hands. So, yeah, and sometimes the uh, – I know at my uh, grampy's cottage on in Point of Barrel, my dad's dad – 
they had a cribbage board, but they didn't actually have the little pegs anymore, so they used matchsticks for markers. Um, quirks aside, there are certain things that seem to pop up at every single Canadian cottage. Meaning, oh, hang on one second. I love you. <laughs> See you in the morning when you go to the cottage? Okay, no worry. Sorry, had to pause for the cause. Um, I will always, 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 always stop for a hug and a kiss from my nieces and my nephews. Okay, so, quirks aside, uh, there are certain things that you will find at every single cottage in Canada that are likely to make you feel at home, no matter whose lakeside retreat you happen to be at. One of them, all-dressed potato chips. Now, we don't have all-dressed in our little stash that we're taking, but we are going to go grocery shopping, and I'm pretty sure a bag will probably end up in the um, basket, but we do have... Now, it seems to just be a summer thing so far. We've only seen them in the summer. They are the absolute best Doritos ever made. Ever. By far, hands down, you can't... <laughs> you can't beat these Doritos. They are called Sonic Sour Cream. Oh my god! I could eat an entire bag to myself. They are so good. So good. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. All dressed ruffles. Potato well, I think it's just basically ruffles potato chips. Sour cream and onion, barbecue, ketchup, salt and vinegar, dill pickle, all dressed um, you may abstain from junk food in the city, but these Canadian treats are irresistible at the cottage. A frisbee. Whether you prefer on the ground or in the water, frisbee tossing, this cottage classic is a guaranteed good time. If you have a dog, they love it too. Now, this is like a standard. If you're going to the cottage or you're going camping at any place, any point in time in Ontario, this is the, the top of your grocery list. If it's not on the grocery list, I can guarantee you there is a screaming kid in some grocery store threatening death by decibel if you do not put a bag of these into the shopping cart. Can you guess what they are? I'll give you three guesses. Nope, not candy. They're white, they're soft, they're smooshy, and you roast them over a fire. Marshmallows, yes, marshmallows. And in Canada, I don't know if they have them in the States, but in Canada, they have actually made specific marshmallows for roasting over the fire and making s'mores. And these things are huge. So even if you don't like s'mores or forget to stock up on chocolate and graham crackers, chances are you've got a bag of elderly marshmallows. Yeah, they're like that big. Yeah. Elderly marshmallows in the back of the cupboard somewhere. Every cottage has marshmallows. Um, okay. Ancient Pyrex or Coralware. Usually a mismatched set of bowls, mugs, and baking dishes. These dishes seem to pop up in everybody's pantry. I don't know why, but they do. Snowshoes. Though they're usually hung for decoration, snowshoes are also around for that day when there's a surprise snowstorm and you've got to get to the shed to grab a new roll of toilet paper. Yep, and I've seen snowshoes in every cottage and I'm going to actually check. I'm going to check for all of these. So this is your bingo card, okay? So if I do podcast next week, we're going to keep track of, I'm going to bookmark this page right now. We are going to keep track of all 20 things. 
And we're going to see if this cottage happens to have, because when the people left, they left everything except for their personal belongings. So we're going to see if this cottage happens to have all 20 things. I know it has the marshmallows. I've already seen the bag. Uh, patio lanterns. Someone cue up the Kim Mitchell. If you're not Canadian, you won't get it. If you're American or Australian or from the UK, um, look up Kim Mitchell patio lanterns. It's a good song. A bird feeder. Whether you feed the goldfinches, grosbeaks, or hummingbirds, or all of them, watching the daily drama of the bird feeder is a national pastime for cottagers. And the drama can sometimes get pretty intense. Uh, a Canadian flag, the go-to decoration for front lawns and decks. You see them all up and down the lake. Um, outhouse paraphernalia. <laughs> outhouse. No, I didn't say hoose. Outhouse paraphernalia. Even if you've never had an actual outhouse on your property, you've probably got a model outhouse or an outhouse calendar or some outhouse-themed humor somewhere around the cottage. And I'll have you know that there is actually an outhouse. <laughs> My manual labor's struggling, but he's getting them packaged up. 51 comic books ready to go. All right. Citronella candles. Those are a must. Ah, very cool. He's got letters, too. Citronella candles are a must because the mosquitoes in cottage country will literally pick your ass up and carry you away. Whether or not they actually work, and some people swear by them, a deck isn't a deck without the lemony scent of citronella wafting in the evening breeze. Wind chimes. My grandparents had wind chimes at their cottage. Wind chimes at the cottage often have a wildlife scene. We've seen cast iron moose hung with bells, chimes shaped like birds, and in a different interpretation of wildlife, wind chimes can be made out of beer cans. They actually sound pretty cool, too. Uh, the 1970s era couch that's ridiculously ugly, but ridiculously comfortable. Too ugly for city life, this couch probably has orange and brown upholstery. But there's no better place to take a nap after a long swim. So again, keep track because we're going to check and see if we have all 20 things. Uh, Lipton's noodle soup, the soup mixed with real chicken broth, now with bigger noodles. Yes, there should be a box of powdered noodle soup. The ultimate rainy day cottage lunch powdered chicken noodle soup is easy to pack and simple to make. Even if you feel like all you feel like doing up is doing is curling up with a good book. And I do happen to know for a fact that they do have a stocked library at this cottage. The people that live there were avid readers and there are plenty of books to choose from for me while I am there. So I may just find myself a book to read. Lawn chairs, vintage lawn furniture in varying states of sitability. And they always have to have the red, the green and the yellow stripes, the ones that look like um, seatbelts. And we had them all. Your whole family may know about the wonky lawn chair. Sit in it very slowly and don't put all your weight on either side. But do your guests a favor and let them know too. No, man, half the fun is waiting until some unsuspecting visitor sits in the wonky lawn chair. And over they go. <laughs> um, oh, yes. And then a potty poem. Somehow humor that would be in bad taste in the city is perfectly appropriate for the cottage. And we already have one. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. 
This one is if you sprinkle when you tinkle, be a sweetie, wipe the seedy. I should put that in the bathroom in California. Because, you know, boys sprinkle when they tinkle. Camping mug. You can throw these in a backpack or just sit from them on the back porch without having to worry about anything breaking. They're great because they're metal. Um, welcome. I hope you brought beer mats. Cottage-themed welcome mat. Cottage-themed welcome mats often remind us that we don't want to be anywhere else. Uh, long poking stick. <laughs> the long pokey stick for a campfire. And you can't call it the poking stick. It's a pokey stick. And if you talk to anybody, they'll tell you you've got to have a good pokey stick for the fire because you have to move things around, poke logs, move them around. You know, wait. I see, I'm hearing the shushing again. It could be the dog, but I don't think it's the dog. So it's often repurposed from other household uses. Chair dowels, anyone? A good fire poking stick is a precious thing. And you don't really want to burn the end too much, so you have to kind of keep an eye on how many times it catches fire because your pokey stick will get very short very quickly. Um, beach towels. Mismatched, threadbare beach towels. Because, whoa, if you have to take the good bathroom towels to the beach... Yeah, Grandma would lose her mind. And if I came back soaking wet, she would hand me a dish towel, a tea towel, and make me stand on the deck, change out of my swimsuit, and leave my wet swimsuit on the deck. And then I needed, I had to streak through the cottage um, and to my room to get dressed without dripping. Uh, an oddball assortment of mugs. No one knows where they come from, but your cottage likely has a collection of strange souvenir mugs that say things like Forest Park Touch Football Champs 1982, an annual conference of HVAC technicians general meeting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, again, keeping track. We're going to see. So those are the 20 things that you'll find in every Canadian cottage. So we're going to see if we can find them in this Canadian cottage because it hasn't been um, redecorated yet. They haven't moved their things in and gotten rid of other stuff. Apparently, there's like five coffee pots. So, you know, we're not going to want for coffee. So I also wanted to share with you some interesting facts about the area. Now, a lot of Muskoka, and because you know I'm a paranormal investigator, you know I had to go there. A lot of Muskoka is considered haunted. Now, Muskoka is a summer playground where people enjoy frivolous afternoons on countless pristine lakes, breathe fresh air, listen to the silence of the forests, and find solace in the hospitality of a resort or the comfort of one's own vacation home. It's one of Ontario's most beloved regions. It's absolutely beautiful. Live studio audience, wait until you start getting the pictures. It's just to die. The other side of Muskoka, however... A side rarely seen and at odds with its reputation as a place for carefree leisure and rustic beauty, there's an underlying darkness that few talk about and fewer still witness. Ghost stories haunt cottage country's dense forests, its deep lakes, and its quaint communities. They creep from shadow to shadow, existing out of sight of the frivolity that marks this land of cottages and resorts. The rocky landscape may have proved to be poor for raising crops, but it's certainly fertile ground for haunting ghost stories. In fact, it seems as if village or town, it seems as if each village or town has a ghost story, 
and that every person you speak to will recall something that was just plain spooky. I've lost my scrolling. There we go. Why? What makes Muskoka so densely populated by spectral inhabitants? It's probably because Muskoka generated the strongest of emotions within visitors and residents alike. On one hand, it's breathtakingly beautiful, and countless people over the past century have fallen under its spell. Muskoka is the kind of place you want to return to year after year, perhaps even in death. On the other hand, for many settlers, it was a place full of sorrow, broken dreams, broken bodies, and unimaginable hardship. They flocked to Muskoka, eager to turn the forests into golden fields of grain, only to have their dreams of a bright future dashed by the darkness of the impenetrable forests. And so souls, tortured by unfulfilled lives, linger on in search of the contentment that escaped them in life. Take, for example, the so-called Ghost of Fairy Lake. As a boy in Ufford, I recall my grandfather talking about the Ghost of Fairy Lake, recounts Ken Veitch, a Bracebridge historian and author. It was a tale that would send shivers down my spine each time I heard it. Sometime in the late 1800s, there was a pioneer couple trying to make a life for themselves on a property adjoining Fairy Lake in Huntsville. Now, we are going to be very, very close to Huntsville, so pay very, very close attention to this story. My Auntie Kathy lives in Huntsville. Give you a little perspective. Um, theirs was a meager existence, ecking out enough crops from the threadbare soil to feed themselves and their young daughter. The misery that was their lives only deepened when the man's wife suddenly passed away. Some say she died during failed childbirth, while others suggest it was one of the illnesses that occasionally swept pioneer era Muskoka that killed her. A child, the daughter, oh, though barely a child, the daughter assumed the household duties, trying to fill the void left by her mother's passing. A dark cloud seemed to hang over the family that year because the fields produced a pitiful crop that meant a lean winter ahead. Snow fell, and if you know anything about anything up there, that's a lot of snow. And as the months passed, food began to run dangerously low. One day, the man hefted his shotgun over his shoulder, kissed his daughter goodbye, and headed out into the cold to hunt for fresh meat. When he didn't return by late afternoon, the girl grew concerned and decided to look for him. Because it was bitterly cold, she pulled a bearskin pelt over her shoulders and went out after him, following his footsteps, still clearly visible in the deep snow. The father, meanwhile, was returning home from a fruitless day of hunting. He was dejected with pangs of hunger, and pangs of hunger racked his stomach. Though, through the trees ahead, he saw the dark shape of a bear. He quickly brought his gun to his shoulder, took aim, and fired. The bear dropped, and blood began to stain the snow. He raced to his kill, only to find that he had shot his daughter dead. For years after, so it goes, residents of the area said they would see a figure dressed like an animal wandering the same field where the girl died. Vike remembers, I wonder if the tragic ghost is still there, haunting the scent, haunted, haunting the scene of her death. Wow. One woman who does continue to haunt the scene of her death is, the, is an Ojibwe maiden seen and felt at Bracebridge's Inn at the Falls. Interestingly enough, she chooses to linger not in any of the five historic buildings that com comprise the inn's property, but rather the Muse, a modern motel-style accommodations unit. At first glance, there's nothing here to suggest a connection to the Ojibwe. But what if we dig a little deeper? Archaeological digs reveal that at least one camp used seasonally by the semi-nomadic Ojibwe existed along the shores of the Muskoka River, where Kelvin Grove Park is today. 
Of course, where people lived, they also died. So surely there were Ojibwe who succumbed to illness, disease, or old age here. But because the Muskoka River floods each spring and the floodwaters would have reached much higher before dams were built to control the flow, burials would logically have been on the higher ground above the river, perhaps even on the very ground where the mews at the inn and at the falls stand today. Some have suggested, but whether she, she was buried somewhere nearby or is simply a wayward ghost who decided to linger, the spectral maiden has become a fixture within the mews. One businesswoman was awakened in the middle of the night by the sensation of being watched. When she opened her eyes, she saw a beautiful First Nations woman with dark straight hair sitting on the bed with her hands in her lap staring at her. Another guest reported a supernatural bone-white mist that rolled up the walls and then flowed over the balcony to envelop him like a cold blanket. The whole time, the terrified gentleman heard mournful chanting and the sounds of drums beating. Then the mist suddenly dissipated as if blown away by, the gust, by a gust of wind, and the sounds of the unearthly burial ceremony faded away. The maiden seems lost, unable to find her way into the afterlife. Thankfully, she is more confused than harmful, and her presence only adds further character to the already charming Inn at the Falls. One of the most popular buildings located within the grounds of Huntsville's Muskoka Heritage Place is the Spence Inn. That is on my paranormal bucket list. Just saying. It's easily the largest building within the reenacted Pioneer Village, and the grandeur of its furnishings instantly tells you that this was a building of importance. But what isn't immediately apparent to wide-eyed visitors is that contained within its gray walls are ghosts and whispered legends of foul misdeeds. One of the rooms in which unusual phenomena most frequently occurs is located on the upper floor, a room furnished as a doctor's office. There's an old wheelchair, shelves lined with medicinal bottles, a desk littered with 19th century stethoscopes and other early tools of the trade, and textbooks on human anatomy and the latest in Victorian medical practices, which were ridiculous, might I add. This room, indeed the entire second floor, is marred by an unpleasant spiritual presence that lingers to this day. Like a deep stain, this dark tinct, the product of foul deeds gone unpunished, can't be removed no matter how many years pass and how much the building changes over time. Once, a staff member heard a loud bang from the second floor. It sounded like something had fallen, so she ran up the stairs and began searching the rooms for the source of the noise. She eventually found it. A big picture in the doctor's room had fallen to the ground for no reason. Couldn't figure it out. There was no explanation for it, she said. I remember a dark feeling in the upstairs that day, and I didn't feel welcome there. Since then, others have experienced the same thing, and it's always the same picture. Another time, a terrified young visitor came face to face with the stooped, almost skeletal spirit of an elderly man. She let out an unearthly scream, when, then raced down the stairs and straight out the front door. One story suggests the ghost is that of an evil doctor, an incompetent and uncaring traveling physician, who left a path of misdeeds in his wake. Chilling experiences in the inn are nothing new, and certainly predate its relocation from Spence. The museum archives have a letter in its possession indicating people have been complaining of spectral activity in and around the building, including ghostly carriages pulling up to the porch during the night, as far back as the early decades of the 20th century, when it served as a private residence. Since the Spence Inn continues to serve as a popular stop on long journeys as it did in the 19th century, except today's guests are not weary stagecoach passengers, but spirits on the road to the afterlife. These are just a handful of the countless ghost stories that linger within the shadowy confines of Muskoka. 
tragic supernatural tales that seem so out of place along the breathtaking natural beauty and small-town charm that our region has been known for. But these stories speak to the history of Muskoka and should be embraced rather than shunned. So, that's just a few of the stories. Ghosts and Ghouls Haunt Muskoka. Oh, that's actually a book. Muskoka's Most Haunted by Andrew Hind. Um, disembodied whispers and darkened rooms, shadows that stealthily slink through the forest, and fading screams echo across the water, echoing across the water, have given rise to spectral folklore in Muskoka. It's easy to imagine ghosts restlessly haunting weary Wild West boomtowns or gloomy castles in Europe, but as author and Muskoka Life contributor Andrew Hind points out, restless spirits also lurk within the shadows of cottage country. Hind is no stranger to ghost stories. He has authored several paranormal books, most recently the 2020 release Silver and Ghosts, Creepy Cobalt and Region, and has led ghost tours at Muskoka's Heritage Place, Historic Inn at the Falls, and through the twilight-darkened streets of Bracebridge. Having already penned two books about cottage country ghosts over the years, why write another? He says, my two previous books that included Muskoka's Ghosts, Cottage Country Ghosts, and Haunted Ontario Lakes, I have both are out of print and getting harder to find in stores, but people keep asking about them. The demand was there, Hind says. So, too, was my passion. So, he wrote these books, and that's all this ad is about. I'm not going to read any more about it, because I'm not going to... Anyway, there's a lot. I didn't read the ad before I saved it. Didn't know what it was. All right, so Haunted Places in, Mus in Muskoka. So, there's the Gravenhurst Opera House. Um, and it has a ghost called Ben. is a former lighting man who fell from the catwalk. Ben is blamed for poltergeist activity, cold spots, light anomalies, footsteps, and more. Then there's the Bala Bay Inn. I've been to Bala. The Bala Bay Inn in Torrance, Ontario, is rumored to be haunted, and it is the locale where E.B. Sutton died in room 319 and lay in state. Ghostly activity reported here includes poltergeist activity, including rumbling and rattling doorknobs, no, door, door usually sounds and TVs working that were not plugged in. Stephen Leacock Museum in Aurelia. The Stephen Leacock Memorial Home is a house. Now, if you're an author, you know who Stephen Leacock is. If you don't, look it up. The Stephen Leacock Memorial House is a house museum rumored to be haunted by Leacock, his wife, and his son. Staff members have heard furniture moving in locked rooms and have seen doors, even locked ones, open and close by themselves. Shadowy figures and other strange phenomena have also been seen. Now, the Stephen Leacock Museum was actually his home. <laughs> it has all of his own personal effects. The Aurelia Opera House. Opera houses seem to be haunted. The Aurelia Opera House is said to be haunted by ghosts who make footsteps, slam doors, create moans and shadows, and drop the room temperature. Investigations have determined that the ghosts are a female who played piano during silent movies, a woman who worked in the ticket office, and, and you're going to take me right off that page, a patron who had a heart attack during a performance. So let's go back. Um, now there's a few in the area that I used to live in, in Midland. Oh, hang on, I'm going Okay. Discovery Harbor, which is now a restaurant. Uh, Discovery Harbor, considered to be the farthest station out in the boonies back in the 1800s, is said to be haunted um, by spirits of shoulder of soldiers, not shoulders, of soldiers who were sent there. Some died of illness and some of grief as they said goodbye to all that was dear to them. Carl Beck House. Now, you've heard me talk about Beck House. 
I actually have a piece of Beck House. All the houses built by late 1800s lumber magnate Carl Beck of Beck Industries. Those constructed for himself and for each of his daughters have a signature tower-like structure on one corner. This building now houses apartments. Beck's, oh, and if you follow TikTok, Selena Spooky Boo actually did a paranormal investigation in Beck House. It was really cool. Uh, Beck's daughters are said to haunt the Beck houses on Fox Street and also on, I can't remember the other street, Kempenfelt Conference Center. The Kempenfelt Bay area has been, <laughs> and I live near the Kempenfelt Bay, just so you know, it's in Innisfil, Ontario. It's near Barrie. Uh, the Kempenfelt Bay area, it's on Lake Simcoe, has been active with, are you ready for this? UFO sightings. Now, you have to take into mind the recent admission from the um, United States government that aliens are real. They have proof. They have the, the spaceships. They have the little green dudes. Aliens are real. So we there have been seen up in Muskoka and Kempenfelt UFO sightings, a lake monster called Kempenfelt Kelly. You know, we have our own. Loch Ness Monster, Kempenfeld Kelly, Ghost Lights, Will-O-Wisps. At the Kempenfeld Conference Center, ghosts have been, has, have been felt sitting on the foot of guests' beds, and cold spots have been noticed all over the building. The Academy Theater in Lindsay. And I have to keep in mind, everybody, that these places are not far from me. And I, I'm noticing as I'm saying some of the names, my live studio audience's eyes are like, oh, I, I remember you saying that place. Um, the Academy Theater is said to have several ghosts. Now, if you notice, a lot of opera houses and a lot of theaters are haunted. And if you go into any theater at night, you will notice that the stage always has a ghost light lit in the middle of the stage. And that is for the ghosts that haunt all of the opera houses and all of the theaters. And this has been, hang on, I'm going to actually Google this because this is an interesting fact. And I want to make sure I get it. Um, ghost light in a theater. Ghost light is an electric light that is left energized on the stage of a theater when the theater is unoccupied and would otherwise be completely dark. It typically consists of an exposed incandescent bulb, CFL lamp, or LED light mounted in a wire cage on a portable stand. It is usually placed near center stage. Ghost lights are also sometimes known as equity lights or equity lamps, possibly indicating that their use was originally mandated by the Actors Equity Association. The practical use of a ghost light is for safety. Ghost light enables one to navigate the theater and find the lighting control console and to avoid accidents such as falling into the orchestra pit and stepping on or tripping over set pieces. Some claim that the tradition began in the days of gaslit theaters, when dim gas lights were left burning to relieve pressure on the gas valves. Aside from its obvious practical purposes, there are a number of superstitions associated with the origin and purpose of ghost lights. The superstitious have various justifications for the ghost light in relation to the supernatural. Popular theatrical superstition holds that every theater has a ghost light, and some theaters have traditions to appease ghosts that reach far back into their history. For example, Powell's Theatre in London keeps two seats in their balcony permanently bolted open to provide seating for theater ghosts. Similar superstitions hold that ghost lights provide opportunities for ghosts to perform on stage, thus appeasing them and preventing them from cursing the theater or sabotaging the set or production. They also use, this is also used to explain the tradition 
traditional one day a week that theaters are closed. Some superstitions claim that the ghost light is in place to scare away ghosts, not appease them. I would think it would be more there to appease them than it would be to scare them. Um, okay, so that's the Academy Theater in Lindsay. The Beald House Country Inn in Collingwood. Beald House Country Inn was built in 1912 for Dr. Joseph Arthur. His family home and office, now an inn, it is said to be haunted by a voice that asks folks what they're doing here. An apparition of a man in a white tie and tails and a top hat. Anchor Park, East Willenberry, Ontario. They're all in Ontario. Rumor has it that a girl was murdered at Anchor Park. Her body was found hanging on a swing on a swing set. On a swing set swing. The swing is now said to swing by itself at night. Sharon Temple. You going to go get soda? Okay. Would you like me to pause? Okay. Keep going. All right. Sharon Temple, East Willenbury. The temple at the Sharon National Historic Site was built in 1832 and was fully restored in 2011. Ghostly activity here includes the sound of a large feast being prepared, music, footsteps, and more. Port Perry Ghost Road. <laughs> the Ghost Road legend begins around 1968 with a young man who crashed on a motorcycle and in some versions was decapitated by a rusty barbed wire fence. Now a big round white light speeds down the road before turning into a small red light sometimes accompanied by the sound of <sighs> the sound of a motorcycle. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, the Newmarket Inn in East Willembury. Folks at Newmarket Inn have reported seeing apparitions of a man wearing a blue coat and hearing disembodied screams. Jester's Court Pub and Eatery. I've eaten here. Now, this one's in Port Perry. I've eaten at Jester's Court Pub and Eatery in Huntsville. Uh, Jester's Court Pub and Eatery, a former private residence, is believed to be haunted. The ghost is an elderly woman in a blue dress who is blamed for blowing out candles, turning lights on and off, and moving glasses and slamming doors. Uh, Henry Harrison House, Grey Goat Pub, Newmarket. The Henry Harrison House, Grey Goat Pub, was built in 1865 and was once a funeral home. Add to that, the original owner is rumored to have died in the house. It is said to be haunted by a ghost who makes sounds in the basement, slams doors, and other things. Wild Wing Newmarket. Once Johnny Bourbon's and Kelsey's restaurant, Wild Wing Newmarket is reported to have a ghostly young woman who screams or quietly says, Help me. Rock Haven Motel, Shoppers Drug Mart, Peterborough, Ontario. At the Rock Haven Motel, Hotel or Motel, now a shopper's drug mart, a honeymoon suite was the site of a grisly 1960s murder. A man killed his wife when he learned that she was carrying the baby of another man. The ghost of a crying woman and a crying newborn have been heard. Peterborough Liftlock. I knew about the Peterborough Liftlocks in Peterborough. Peterborough Liftlock has a ghost and a curse set by an unknown woman who was burned at the stake in the 1840s. The ghost has been known to attack men, and the curse is said to have caused many accidents here. Ghosts of those who have committed suicide here have been seen. Witnesses have also reported screams, footsteps, unexplained odors, strange lights, and faces peering out of the tunnels. The site was featured on Creepy Canada. Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, 
intense place. Rockland Inn in Markdale, the historic Rockland Inn, rumored, rumor has it that a ghost maid still cleans some of the rooms. Nice. Salem Cemetery in Pickering. Salem Cemetery, along with the Salem Church, was established in 1849 for the Wesleyan Methodist Congregation. While the church closed in 1890, the cemetery is still in use. Visitors here have seen apparitions and experienced other strange phenomena. Regent Theater in Oshawa. Uh, the Thomas, the Regent Theater is a nightclub that was once a movie theater. An eerie shadow man along with cold temperatures have been noticed here, especially upstairs. Uh, the Thompson Memorial Park in Toronto. Callan College in Toronto. Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Now, I have actually have family buried in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. My great-great-grandparents. No, my great-grandparents. Yeah. My great-grandparents are buried in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. My grandmother's parents. Yeah. Uh, reports say active spirits at Mount Pleasant Cemetery once pushed an employee right off a lawn tractor. Other strange things reported here include voices, unexplained noises, shadowy figures, objects that disappear, disturbances that cause malfunctions in electrical devices, and heightened feelings of unease and fear. Uh, the Boston Mills Cemetery in Caledon, of course, cemeteries, you know. Boston Mills Cemetery witnesses have seen ghost children playing tag among the tombstones and an apparition of a priest. Orbs, footsteps, rustling leaves, and lights in the abandoned church have also been reported. Bellefontaine Conservation Area in Caledon. Uh, Bellefontaine Park is rumored to be haunted by ghosts who walk along the streets and sometimes can be heard yelling, help. Uh, the Nutty Chocolatier in North Bay. The Nutty Chocolatier is an old-time candy shop that has a ghost. Employees have heard the wrought iron ice cream shop chairs sliding around by themselves in the back when no one was there. The location was once a fire station, but stood empty for years before becoming a candy shop. Keg Mansion in Toronto. Keg Mansion is said to be haunted by Lillian, a maid who hanged herself in 1915 on the premises. She was employed by its owner, industrialist Hart Massey. According to one story, after the death of Massey's daughter, Lillian was so aggrieved that she hanged herself. The Old Dawn Jail, which unfortunately I do believe has been torn down. Now, the Old Dawn Jail is something that is on every paranormal investigator's list. Um, I do believe they tore it down. Uh, I'm just checking. That's why there's this this gap. Um, all right, so I'm going to tell you about the Don Jail um, in a moment. But yeah, the old Don Jail, a.k.a. the Toronto Jail, opened in 1864 and is now a rehabilitation hospital next to the jail. It's one of the oldest remaining pre-Confederation buildings in Toronto, and many hangings were held there since 1908. The place... The place's most well-known spirit is that of a ghost that is privacy error. What do you mean privacy error? My connect, your connection is not private. Just go. Proceed. Okay. So, um, the place's most well-known spirit is that of a ghost, is of a female prisoner who hanged herself in her cell. 
She is seen hovering near the main rotunda and has been known to scream from time to time. Visitors sometimes have had unexplained crying episodes while there. Can you imagine the grief, though, that would be built up in a jail? So the Don Jail, which is the new Toronto jail, um, as seen above. The old Don Jail opened in 1864 and closed in 1977. It was Toronto's fourth jail, replacing the one on the site of the old Parliament buildings at Front and Parliament. Well, in the years just before it closed, it was considered an embarrassment to the Canadian criminal justice system. When it opened, it was called the Palace for Prisoners. At the time, it represented a tremendous advance in the public attitude toward the treatment of lawbreakers. Until then, as was then the worldwide custom, prisoners had been confined in appalling and inhumane conditions. Its architect was William Thomas, who also designed St. Michael's Cathedral and St. Lawrence Hall. Both beautiful. Oh, the cathedral is incredible. Construction started in October 1859, and it was almost completed in when, in 1962, a disastrous fire necessitated its rebuilding. The firm of William Thomas and Sons reconstructed the building to his original plans, and it was occupied in January 1864. William Thomas ranks as one of Canada's leading architects. I don't want to read about William Thomas. I want to tell you about the jail. Um, now, prisoners were not allowed to talk without permission and received only monthly visits from friends and family. Violations frequently resulted in flogging. For about the first 100 years, inmates generally were not allowed to speak unless addressed first by a person, by a prison official. Prisoners spent 23 hours a day in the cell blocks with the remaining hour in the outdoor exercise yard, which is now a parking lot. They had to keep moving in the yard and were not allowed to sit around and soak up the sun. The inmates did much of the maintenance, including painting, carpentry work, and other jail repairs. They also worked a jail farm that covered much of the present Riverdale Park. Riverdale Park is now full of crackheads and, you know, other things. Upon the arrival at the jail, inmates were escorted to the reception area where they were given prison garb in exchange for their own clothes, which were disinfected. The superintendent made sure that a big kettle of nourishing soup was brewing for the drunks rounded up on Saturday nights. He knew they wouldn't be able to stomach anything else. It is said that in the early years, when the native landlocked salmon still ran up the dawn, that's the river, that the prisoners complained of being fed too much salmon. Public hanging in Canada wasn't abolished until 1869, and in Toronto, it was moved indoors from the Don Jail Yard into its confines in 1905. The Don Jail was said to be haunted by a blonde-haired ghost. It is there, in one of the tiny cells reserved for women in the West Wing, that a prisoner hung herself in the 1890s. The report is that guards in the graveyard shift saw her spirit floating through the air in the main rotunda. Riverdale Branch Library was built on the property that the City of Toronto conveyed to the Toronto Public Library Board in early 1909. Um, so the new jail, which normally holds over 600 inmates, was scheduled to close in 2009 when the new detention centre was completed in Mimico. So the old Don Jail was closed, and I do believe that it was eventually... Um, torn down uh, this is 2013 oh, what is the dawn jail now when it's once the largest of its kind in north america 
The Don Jail was Toronto's biggest building project when it was completed in 1864. Underused for three decades and badly in need of repair, the jail now makes up 7,100 square meter administration wing of Bridgepoint Active Healthcare. So it's still, all right, it's still open. It's just been changed. So, all right. Uh, Queen's Park in Toronto. Queen's Park in Toronto is said to have an apparition of a female in tattered clothing who hangs from a rope. Screams have been heard as well, and the legislature building is said to be haunted. Now, Queen's Park is, is where all of our government takes place in Toronto. Those are all the governmental buildings. Um, the legislature building is where, you know, obviously, legislature is made, is said to be haunted by many ghosts. World War I hero and Victoria Cross recipient Charles Rutherford. Ryerson University. At Ryerson, I have actually heard, I know people who went to Ryerson and have told me about this. Um, Ryerson University rumor has it that a ghostly white female figure, cold spots, wind gusts, light anomalies, and whispered names have been seen or experienced near McAllister Studio. Mackenzie House in Toronto. Toronto's got a lot of haunted places. Mackenzie House was the final home of William Lyon Mackenzie. Now, if you don't know who William Lyon Mackenzie is, do you know who William Lyon Mackenzie is? Tell me, what do they teach you about Canadian history? William Lyon Mackenzie was a Scottish Canadian American journalist and politician. He was also and I want to get his title right. Okay, here we go. Let's check this out. I think he was one of our prime ministers. I could be wrong. Um, he was a merchant, journalist, politician, and rebel. Uh, William Lyon Mackenzie's career can only be understood if a man and the legend are separated. Virtually ill examinations of his life have concentrated on his political activities from 1824 to 1838, and such concentration has helped to develop the legend, the myth, the man, the legend. Because he was most active in periods of stress when the post-Napoleonic depotism was breaking down, new waves of technology were shaking society, and the North American continent was being transformed from wilderness into farmland. His advocacy of radical changes brought him quickly into prominence. Moreover, his colleagues and opponents brought him quickly... <coughs> Let me try that again. Moreover, his colleagues and opponents were less colorful. Fortune let him initiate a rebellion which to later generations seemed crucial in forging Canada's institutions and establishing a national spirit of democracy, justice, and freedom from oppression. As a legend, Mackenzie has a role and importance that Mackenzie, the man, could never achieve. Thus, he is one of the most documented and discussed, and yet one of the most frequently misunderstood figures in Canadian history. He himself laid the basis for the confusion which has surrounded his career. He regularly recorded his own past and his objectives in great detail, but his commentaries were often based on a faulty memory or spurred by the existencies of the moment. Both branches of Mackenzie's family came from Glenshee in the parish of Kirkmichael, north of Dundee, Ireland, or Scotland. His parents married in Dundee, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Willie, as he was called, although the family also used Lyon, or Leon, Entered the Dundee Parish School. Okay, this is all of his life. 
Um, yeah, he was, uh, he's a rebel. The bad boy. The riding Mackenzie chose to contest was the two-member county of York, which is where I live, which included present-day Toronto north of Queen Street and the counties of York, Peel, and Ontario. The population, to a large extent of American extra extraction, promised to be reform-oriented. Three other leading reform candidates declared themselves, J.E. Small and Robert Baldwin, also moderates, and the more radical Ketchum. <laughs> yeah, he's got quite a colourful history. Anyway, he's a fairly famous Canadian um, that had a lot to do with our political system in Canada and a lot of the things that were set in stone for Canadian law. Um, this is very long. I'm not reading all of it. Anyway, yeah. So he's a Scottish-born Canadian-American journalist and politician, basically. And he had fierce views on political equality and responsible government. So he created democracy. <laughs> we'll go with that. I'm wrong, but we'll go with it anyway. Uh, Toronto's first mayor, who died in the house in 1861, now operates as a historic house museum of 1860s, 1860s Victorian life. Its three ghosts are thought to be the elderly lady in the Rose Room, a bagpipe, bagpipe player, and William Lyon Mackenzie himself. Old City Hall. In 1899, Old City Hall building, designated a historic site in 1984, has a ghost in its rear staircase known to walk up and down with loud footsteps and tug on the robes of judges. Um, ghostly moaning has been heard in the cellar, once a prisoner's holding area. Omni King Edward Hotel in Toronto, Heritage Theatre in Brampton, the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, which is interesting because it used to be a bank. So the apparition of a teller named Dorothy makes an appearance. Fairmont Royal, the Fairmont Royal York. Now my grandparents have stayed at the Royal York Hotel. And I can tell you from a very young age, I knew that place was haunted right from the get-go. It was, it, yeah, <laughs> it's very haunted. A suicide, ghostly children, and unending balls are all said to haunt the Royal York Hotel. People claim to hear music and laughter coming from the closed ballroom, and a porter who hanged himself is sometimes spied hanging about the stairwell. People, including author Christopher Hurd, have heard things. Fort York, obviously, Fort York is a war of 1812 and World War One and II site that is still visited by some of its former soldiers. Cannon fire and gunfire have been heard, and I've actually watched paranormal shows that they have investigated Fort York and have caught on camera and on audio the um, the sound of cannons going off, firing the ghostly lantern lights. Um, yeah, it's really kind of cool. Gibraltar Point Lighthouse, and that is it. And it's in Toronto as well. So there are a lot of haunted places in and around where I'm going. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, but also kind of a little, hmm, <laughs> you know. But I'm very excited to be going to the cottage. So that was your, I can't really say Freaky Friday fun facts. Well, yes, I could say Freaky Friday fun facts because those are fun facts and it's going to come out on Friday and some of them are kind of freaky. But now we're going to go to Florida Man.
and see what Florida Man, because a lot of my listeners love Florida Man. So this one kind of ties into um, a lot of these are tied into Canadian stories. So this one is a man arrested in cold case of woman found in Ontario, dumped her body in river. So a man charged with murdering a woman who was found dead in eastern Ontario decades ago told police the cold told police investigating the cold case that he dumped her body in a river. The details of Rodney Mervyn Nichols' conversation with Ontario Provincial Police at a Florida retirement home are contained in court documents filed this week as Nichols was arrested Tuesday. <laughs> Probably the most excitement that retirement home has seen in years. OPP have charged Nichols of Hollywood, Florida, with murder in the death of Jewel Lala Langford, referred to as Lala Jewel Langford, in the U.S. legal documents. Police have said Langford, a 48-year-old who was from Tennessee, had traveled to Montreal in April 1975 and never returned home. Her body was found in the Nation River in eastern Ontario, but remained unidentified for decades, with the case being referred to as that of the Na Nation River Lady until forensic ge genealogy identified her in 2020. U.S. court documents show OPP officers traveled to Florida last year and interviewed Nichols at a Florida retirement home in February 2022. He initially denied any involvement in Langford's disappearance, but later provided several pieces of information. First, he said he and Langford, who police have said knew each other, had gone out on a sailboat that capsized and she drowned as a result, the documents say. He then said he tried to drown Langford in a river because he was depressed. Um, babe, if you ever get depressed and we're around, please don't drown me. Or at least try to. Um, when shown photographs of neckties and other items that had been bound around Langford's body, Nichols said the neckties belonged to him and two dish towels. Another towel and a blanket were from his home. Canadian authorities then advised Nichols that he had admitted to the murder of Langford and that he could be charged. Following a telephone consultation with a lawyer with a legal aid lawyer in Canada, Nichols then stated that he had an altercation with Langford that started in his home in Montreal and that he subsequently dumped her body in the Nation River. When asked by investigators why he confessed, he said that he had to come clean. He started to feel terrible for what he had done. Dude, you're old. You got busted in a retirement home. The food's probably crap. You're in Florida. You're going to come back to Canadian prison and free health care. So, you know, you're old. Um, Nichols was arrested on Tuesday and appeared in court where an extradition hearing was set for September 26th. And yeah, that was actually updated as of July 27th, 2023. So that is a current Florida man. So that's not technically a Florida man because he was originally a Canadian man <laughs> turned Florida man. But, you know. Okay, so this one... Hmm. Uh, has voyeurism and a Buddhist monk in it. So a Florida man has pleaded guilty to a voyeurism charge dating back to the time he served as head monk at a Cape Breton Buddhist monastery. <laughs> oh my God. 
Okay, Jack Hilly is accused of observing or recording a person in a circumstance where they have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Between So they're probably in the bathroom <laughs> between December 2020 and November 2021 when he was head monk at Gampo Abbey Monastery in Pleasant Bay, Nova Scotia. That's in Canada. Hilly, a United States citizen, entered his guilty plea via video call in Port Hawkesbury Provincial Court later this week, earlier this week. His lawyer, James Giacomanatonio, told Judge Nicole Rovers his client would gather documents for the Crown ahead of sentencing. Both Giacomanatonio and Hilly are <laughs> expected to attend the sentencing in person on November 7th. Hilly is also facing civil legal proceedings in connection with his time at the monastery. In a lawsuit filed last month in Nova Scotia Supreme Court, Christopher Longoria of Texas alleges he was secretly filmed by Hilly while taking a shower. So he told you, in the bathroom. In November 2021 at Gampo Abbey. Longoria is seeking unspecified damages from Gampo Abbey and its parent company, Shambhala Canada Society. I don't know where that beeping is coming from, but okay. Why are you parking behind your house? Oh, okay. Um, the lawsuit alleges... The two organizations were negligent in failing to protect residents' privacy. Plaintiff says in the lawsuit that he arrived at the remote monastery in November 2021, planning to stay until he was ordained as a monk. He says that shortly after he arrived, while showering, he discovered a camera attached to the wall. So he obviously didn't try and hide what he was doing. <laughs> All right. I'm telling you, I'm beginning to worry about... Um, Canadians and going to Florida. Oh dear. Well, this isn't good. So they found an alligator. And um, despite alligators being a pretty common sight in Florida, unprovoked alligators attacks are pretty rare. So when a 72-year-old man lost a portion of his right leg in an aggressive to an aggressive alligator at an RV park last Friday, people were shocked. Uh, when the animal was later spotted with the man's foot dangling from its mouth, <laughs> he didn't eat it yet. Mind you, the man was 72, so I'm probably sure he was a little chewy. Um, the identified man lost his leg from knee down outside his home at the Great Outdoors RV and Golf Resort in Brevard County. Of course, it's Brevard County, reports NBC affiliate Weish. The man was airlifted to hospital after the massive reptile chomped off his leg while Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission officers and Brevard County Sheriff's deputies arrived on scene to assess the situation and track down the gator. Officers clocked the gator at a nearby canal, following it with rifles. But when the animal came to the water's surface, they were horrified to see a human foot clearly protruding from the gator's mouth. In video captured by WESH cameras, the alligator is seen surfacing. The outlet reports that officers fired four shots, killing the alligator. Another smaller alligator was also exterminated. After that, an FWC officer 
retrieved what was clearly a foot and part of the leg, the announcer says in the video voiceover, adding that they chose to omit the grisly footage of the limb retrieval out of respect for the victim. They did get the leg. It was with the gator that they know bit him. So they've got both gators that were in that pond, which they have to do. Unfortunately, it has it's what has to be done. Brandon Fisher, a spokesman, spokesman for Gatorland, told WSVN, hopefully nobody was feeding this gator in this RV park. But if that were the case and that alligator has lost its fear for hu of humans, it's going to come closer. And whether you have the food or don't have the food that day, that could be the difference between what might have happened. According to the FWC, a Floridian has a 1 in 3.1 million chance of being seriously injured in an unprovoked alligator attack. Each year, there are an average of eight unprovoked alligator attacks causing serious injury. All right. So, folks, don't provoke an alligator. Ew. Oh, my God. Okay, so you know how you see those neti pots everywhere and everybody's saying, you know, like, rinse out your sinus cavities and, and use this pour water through your nose? Um and all that good stuff. Well, a Florida man is dead after he was infected with a brain-eating amoeba that may have been contracted from rinsing his sinuses with tap water. The Florida Department of Health in Charlotte County confirmed the deceased pa patient, who has not been named publicly, was infected with Nalgleria falwiri, a microscopic single-cell living amoeba. Officials are continuing to investigate the case. Ew. That's why you can't drink the water in Florida. And they will tell you that. Don't drink the water in Florida, man. Don't drink it. Don't snort it. Don't do nothing with the water in Florida. <laughs> Just bathe in it and carry on. Most infections occur during the summer months as the amoeba thrives in warm environments. <clears throat> Ew. Oh, and of course, you know, the, the amoeba has earned its nickname, the brain-eating amoeba, for its ability to cause fatal brain infection called primary amoebic Menageocephalitis. Oh, man, I actually said that. <laughs> so, yeah, those infected with the amoeba experience headache, fever, nausea, disorientation, stiff neck, vomiting, and other more extreme symptoms, including hallucination and coma. So, yeah, don't snort the water, okay? Just don't. No snorting the water. Um, oh, God, dude, you just look creepy. Ew. Ew. You look like a pedo. So this Florida man was arrested after one ton of child pornography was found in his home. One ton. 72 years old was arrested in Ocala, Florida, after police received a tip claiming multiple files depicting child pornography had been uploaded to the Internet. He looks like, you know, the creepy skeletal dude from Poltergeist, you know, the one that comes to the door with the hat, says, I'm going to help you, Caroline. Yeah, he looks like that. Ugh, nightmares. Nightmares. So. <laughs> okay, I got to stop for a minute because I just got waved at by like the newest, soon to be hottest podcaster ever. So if you guys listen to Flashback Fridays, you're going to hear a new little voice doing the podcast because our regular podcast is having oral surgery. And her name is Zoe Montoya. And let me tell you, I, I heard the um, unedited take last night, and she's incredible. She sounds like she's 20, 
but just so y'all know, she's not. Um, she sounds amazing. She really knocked it out of the park, and I am hoping, personally, I'm putting my vote in for her to be the regular uh, Flashback Friday podcaster. So, yeah, she is an amazing, she's an amazing kid to begin with. And then um, to hear her podcasting, just the confidence that she exuded as she did her podcast and the jokes that she threw. She had me killing myself laughing. <laughs> I'm going to need therapy. I died. <laughs> I like buried my face in my pillow because I'm trying not to laugh. I was trying not to laugh so loud. Um, but yeah, she is an amazing little podcaster. I want you guys to all go and listen to Flashback Fridays. I don't care if you listen to the podcasts. But listen to the excerpts in between each podcast because she's incredible. And if you agree with me that she should take over Flashback Fridays, um, start hassling Dave. Because <laughs> I really think she should. She did an amazing job. And I'm pretty sure that she will probably outrank uh, Lupus Bits and Myth Bits at some point in time because she's just that good. Competition, man. But I, you know what? I will happily concede top spot to this child. Definitely can see top spot to this child because she's good. All right, back to Florida man. Uh, help me out. Florida man saves stranded cat from Hurricane Ian surge. Aw, that's a nice one. Uh, Florida man allegedly tries to purchase girl from parents for 100k at grocery store. Dude, police claim this is the second time the Florida man has tried to purchase a young girl from parents at a grocery store. Why is he still running around? Florida man, oh dude, I am so sorry. Florida man watching beach sunrise killed after sand dune collapses on him. Ooh, that looks good. Um, Martin County Sheriff's official has called the Florida man's death a tragic accident. <laughs> Apparently Florida doesn't like them either. Welland, Ontario man faces impaired driving charges in connection with fatal Cambridge collision. Well, that has nothing to do with Florida. All right. Load more stories. We got a couple of more. How far are we? Holy crap, we're at an hour twenty minutes already. Alright, so let's see. Oh no. Oh dude. Dude, that's just not right. Oh, poor dude. Florida man cooked alive after police use stun gun in gas station arrest. <laughs> okay, we gotta read this one. Oh man, that's just not right. So, um, a 26-year-old Florida man, is. if you're eating and you have a squeamish stomach, you might want to stop for a minute, because this actually comes with graphic details that are disturbing warning. The 26-year-old Florida man is still fighting for his life after a sheriff's deputy allegedly shot him with a stun gun as he refueled his dirt bike at a gas station on February 28th. Lawyers for Gene Barreto released a statement on Facebook claiming he sustained third-degree burns to 75% of his body. Barreto's counsel at the Najami Law Group, Najami, we be jamming, claims the injuries result from the Osceola County Sheriff's Department. Osceola? 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 Hard C, soft C. Osceola or Osceola? Oscello? Os okay. Um, failure to follow applicable policies, procedures, protocols, and practices. The Najami Law Statement claims Barreto stopped at a Wawa gas station in Orange County, Florida, 
after attending a meetup with a group of motorbike enthusiasts. The statement claims that as he fueled his dirt bike, an Osceola County Sheriff's Depart deputy body slammed Beretto with a flying tackle from behind and before he could close the gas cap on the tank. The force of the tackle knocked both Beretto and his motorbike to the ground, spilling gasoline on Beretto and the officer. The statement alleges three other officers then arrived at the scene and one deputy proceeded to employ the use of a taser on Mr. Beretto, engulfing almost his entire body in flames and approximately half of the other deputies as well. <laughs> oh, no. This fireball caused by the reckless, foolish, foolish, unnecessary and deadly tasing leading to the horrific explosion engulfing the two of them and injuring two other deputies with minor burns. The state fire marshal's report confirmed the taser was the cause of the blaze. <laughs> well, that cop's no longer working for the Orange County Police Department. He's probably going to get charged with involuntary manslaughter or at least um, assault. The statement claims Beretto was unarmed at the time. After the incident, the Osceola County Sheriff's Office told NBC affiliate Weish that the deputies were attempting to arrest Beretto as they say he was part of a group of motorcyclists who were driving recklessly and pointing a gun at other drivers. Police also claim Beretto fled from a traffic stop. Beretto has spent 10 weeks in hospital and is still undergoing potentially life-saving but excruciatingly painful treatment. The statement says it claims the burns span from the bottom of his feet up to the bottom of his neck. He is without skin on most of his body, his skin having been burned off. He undergoes procedures that require his dead skin to be routinely peeled off his body. It's called debreeding. Mr. Barreto will again be placed in a medically induced coma over the next couple of days. The statement, yeah, he's probably in constant pain, excruciating pain. The statement claims that the Osceola County Sheriff's officers were outside of their jurisdiction when they attempted to arrest Beretta. Beretto. Beretto's legal team is calling on the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to take over the case and for the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene and commence an investigation into the Osceola County Sheriff's Department. The Osceola County Sheriff's Department has yet to respond publicly to the claims of Beretto and his lawyers. A press conference led by the Osceola County Sheriff's Department is planned for Thursday afternoon. Holy moly. <laughs> oh yeah, if he lives, he's going to be a millionaire. He's going to be a scarred and in pain millionaire. Um, oh dear. All right, so let's see. Florida man calls police to verify his meth is authentic. Wait, what? <laughs> Hold on. Most drug users tend to keep their dealings under wraps, but one Florida man was arrested after allegedly calling police to check the authenticity of his methamphetamine. In a Facebook post from Hernando County Sheriff's Office, authorities claim Spring Hill, Florida resident Thomas Eugene Colucci dialed 911 to test the methamphetamine he had recently purchased. Colucci told dispatched officers he purchased the drugs from a male person at a local bar. I think I saw this on TikTok and I thought it was a joke. Oh my God. They actually have the 911 call on TikTok. And I thought it was a joke. I was dying. 
because he, he phones them and he asks, like, how do you know if your meth is good? And the dispatcher's like, I beg your pardon? And he's like, I bought some meth and I, I'm not sure if it's good. How, how can I tell if it's good? Um, you know, I'm just over here cooking some up and I want to make sure it's good. Wait, what? <laughs> just the dispatcher, like, the cops are on their way. Um, the report goes on to state Colucci allegedly told officers as an experienced drug user <laughs> who has used methamphetamine prior, he knew what it should feel like. The Florida man even produced two dime bags containing white crystal-like substance, which he handed over to the deputy, <laughs> telling officers that he did not want other drug users to purchase fake methamphetamine. Gucci <laughs> asked to have his drugs tested for authenticity. Offers did eventually test the two baggies surrendered by Colucci, both of which tested positive for methamphetamine. The Hernando County Sheriff's Department charged Colucci with possession of methamphetamine, possession of drug paraphernalia, two counts, and set his bond at 7000 In a statement, the Hernando County Sheriff's Department wrote, If you or someone you know have doubts about the authenticity of any legal narcotics you have on hand or have obtained from another person, the Hernando County Sheriff's Department is pleased to provide this service free of charge. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. I think that is the best Florida man story yet. Oh, my gosh. That was that was insanely good. And the fact that I actually saw the actual 911 call on TikTok just makes it even better. <laughs> Florida man. You know what? I'm going to end on that one because that one is pretty funny and I don't think I can top that. So we're going to end there. And um, just remember, folks, if you are concerned about the authenticity of your drugs, call your local police department. They will test them for you for free. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. Oh my god, I can't even. Okay. Alright, everybody, you know the drill. If you watch any of my social media, um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on TikTok, I'm on... I can't even call it Twitter anymore. I call it X. So, yeah, we were discussing this the other day, and anything from this point on is copyrighted to me. Um, so, if... On Twitter, if posts... And messages were called tweets because you would tweet something for people to see. Now that it's called X, would it be X to see? X, would you call it ecstasy? Oh, you tell me. What do you think? All right, everybody. You know the drill. Be kind. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Go be kind to a stranger. I posted a challenge on my TikTok for people to go and do one nice thing for a complete stranger, whether it's smile at them, compliment them, buy them a coffee. So now I am challenging you. You be quiet. Now I'm challenging you. Go be kind to a stranger. I don't want to know about it. You don't have to tell me about it because being kind, I, I want you to be kind for being for the sake of being kind, not for the accolades, not for the attaboys, not for the pat on the shoulder, not for somebody to look at you and go, good for you. You're a good person. Go and do it just to be a good person. OK, so be kind. And, you know, the cardinal rule 
of Lupus Bits. It is etched in stone. Don't lick shit. All right, everybody, have a good week, and hopefully we will talk to you next week. See ya. Carry on my way, well, son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry. Don't you cry.